Anyway, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, you can tell that we're still kind of uh, floating through Bible passages uh, as they're laid on my heart, and then I've got a little something cooked up for uh, September for you. So, but uh, for now, here we are in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 4, and this is God's Word. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we're still on the Olympics here uh, this week, uh, I've got a, an opening illustration for you, which is a, a picture that will be uh, familiar to uh, probably most of you, and that is, <laughs> that is uh, Michael Phelps on the left, and that's his nemesis from, I can't, where is he from, Romania or somewhere? What's, where, South Africa? Okay. Well, you know, they, they end up all huggy and stuff by the end of the week and everything, but right here, they're about to race, and Phelps, you know, he has headphones on. There's no telling what he's listening to. Um, and then this guy's up there like shadow boxing and horsing around and trying to distract him. And he gets frownier and frownier and more focused and more focused, Michael Phelps does. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, if that were me up there and that joker was doing that to me, it would, it would probably bother me. <laughs> it would probably distract me. I get distracted a little bit easy. I get scared if somebody walks in the room and if I'm concentrating on something, it would probably spook me. And I was thinking through this going, man, what a cool shot and, and the focus and he goes in the water just a win, win, win. Um, I think all he really is probably thinking about right there is, wait a second, I'm Michael Phelps. You know, I'm the uh, best in the world. I'm perhaps the, arguably the best athlete who ever lived. And uh, I got this focus thing that I do. And all I got to do is ignore this goofball with his tongue out and shadow boxing and all that, get in the water. And all I've got to do is be me because I'm Michael Phelps. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, you want to know what the big idea I think here is? I think it's something similar to that, that the church is equipped to live as who she is. In other words, we need to be us. We need to be who we are in Christ. And to understand that point, we need to grab a couple things straight away. First of all, that we're in 1 Peter, look at, we should look at who the letter's written to and who the letter's written by. Pretty easy to figure out who it's written by. It's called 1 Peter. So Peter the Apostle writes it. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says Peter the Apostle, and uh, he's writing. And it says he's writing to the elect 
exa, elect, that's, that's synonymous with born-again, Christian, saint, however you want to say it. He's writing to Christians, and they are exiles of the dispersion. Now, if you remember, uh, back in the book of Acts, after the stoning of Stephen, something happened. You know what happened? Intense persecution. Great persecution happened. And what it did was, is it scattered the church. All right? So they're in Jerusalem. Stephen is stoned. It's in Acts 8. And by the way, um, oh, it's, I shouldn't even waste, I don't want to, it's not a waste of time. I'm turning to something in the Bible. But it is kind of cool that, um, it's not in my notes, but um, that Paul, ah, it's so cool. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Acts, don't turn, but it says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on a, that great day a persecution in the church of Jerusalem and so on. But it's so cool that Saul's tucked right in there in the issue of Stephen because Saul's about to kapoom in chapter 9. He's converted. It's just amazing. But anyway, there arose this great persecution in Jerusalem, and the saints were scattered throughout uh, Judea um, and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And by the way, you know, um, sometimes I've heard it... Uh, I've heard it said that the, the apostles, why didn't the apostles go? I mean, uh, did they just, it's not like they were like staying in luxury homes like Benny Hinn or some millionaire televangelist. They were staying where the persecution was. You get that? I mean, the, the saints scattered. They left where the persecution was, but the apostles stayed in the hub. They stayed on the front lines, these apostles. So they stayed where it was most dangerous, okay? But all that to say, the Jews are scattered. And uh, they, they go out, and over the next few decades, they, they are scattered. They've left Jerusalem. And uh, what has happened? Well, um, they're mingling with culture. They're meeting Gentiles. And how does God use that? Well, the gospel ends up spreading uh, to the Gentile word, not world. Remember that in Jerusalem, the early church uh, was Jewish. Um, uh, Christians were Jewish. All Christians, pretty much were Jewish Christians. It was the Jewish church. They'd come to see the uh, fulfillment in the Messiah of all that it had been pointed toward. All right, but when, they, when persecution comes, they're scattered, and all of a sudden the gospel message goes up and out, and it goes into the Gentile world. Now that, ladies and, by the way, that was the whole point, you know. Um, it wasn't just that uh, uh, the Israelites would be this little, uh, this little closed community. That was never the plan. The plan had always been this in Genesis 12. The Lord says to Abram, leave. Go from your father's country. Go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. There it is. I'm going to make you great so that you can be a blessing. That was the plan all along. It wasn't just for some cloistered uh, people. It was, it, was, it was expansive. It was inclusive. It, was, um, it pointed to the future. It was this net thrown out all, all over humanity. I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who curse you, Abram, and whoever dishonors you, I'll curse them. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A lot of other translations say all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And so it was always a plan that through Israel, there would be this conduit of blessing and the nations would be brought in. And so, ladies and gentlemen, um, th- this book, First Peter, is believed to have been written to Gentile Christians. So here you have this, this, this church that starts in Jerusalem, persecution enters, they spread all over the place, the gospel spreads, and now they're a bunch of Gentile believers, 
And that is the group to whom Peter is primarily writing is Gentile believers. It is believed that for a few reasons. Number one, in chapter one, verse 14, it makes a reference to um, uh, the readers, the original readers' former ignorance. Well, that's a very Gentile thing to say. Um, the Jews had all the benefits of the priests and the kings and the judges and the types and, and uh, the saviors and, and uh, deliverers and so on, uh, but, but Gentiles were always thought of as, as, as having come from an ignorant position. Very Gentile thing to say. Another thing in verse 18 of chapter 1, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. Well, that would, that would not be said about uh, the Jews because their forefathers were uh, their forefathers. Um, and then again in chapter 4, there's, a, there's a, a description of Gentile behavior. So all that to say, isn't it interesting, ladies and gentlemen, that as we come to these verses today, we see um, Christians who had been under persecution in Jerusalem. They'd been under persecution, right? And so uh, that heavy persecution causes them to scatter. The gospel message goes out. God uses it. Now there's a world of Gentile Christians, and guess what's happening to them? Persecution. <laughs> so wherever the gospel is preached truthfully and embraced wholeheartedly, there will be persecution. A world that rejects the Savior will always reject the people of the Savior. All right? So all that uh, opening to say this. Got two main ideas for you today, two sermon points, uh, and there's a huge word of encouragement in front of us. So here's our first idea of two today. A spiritual house made of living stones. Uh, let's look at verse 4. As you come to him. Now let's pause there for a minute. That, that's, that, that's the kind of thing that's very easy to skim right over. It's kind of like when we pray and we say, Father, we this, Father, we that, Father, God, this. It's very easy to, to um, forget how unbelievable it is that God hears us that we are able to come to him. That's just an, a profound thing. But, but just a consideration of that, that we can come to God, that'll give you strength for Monday, won't it? That, that you have access, full access, with freedom and confidence to this living God and Jesus Christ, a huge word of hope for you. But think about these original readers. They were real people. They were receiving a real letter from a real pastor person who really did care about them. And in the mind of the writer... How is he treating them? He's treating them like they're believers, right? He's treating them like they've already come to a saving faith, isn't he? I mean, it just, just as you just even a, a cursory look at the letter, um, will show you that his perspective is, hey, I'm writing to believing people here, okay? So isn't it interesting that he's writing to believing people, but in verse 4 he says, as you come to him. The idea there, if you, if you look that up and you study that for a bit, you would see that the idea that you come to him is the idea not just that you just come once savingly, true, but that you come and you keep on coming. You come, you keep coming, and you long to come again and are still received, 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 received. That's the gospel right there. Now, continue on. As you come to Christ... And uh, we're, we're told here that he's a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now that he's, he's, he's making this statement, he's, he's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen 
and precious. Those are not just empty assertions about Jesus. Oh, he's wonderful, he's great, he's chosen, he's precious. It's not being thrown around. He's not some contemporary Christian songwriter. He's backing what he's saying up in the scriptures. For instance, he quotes, he goes on to quote three verses from the Old Testament. Um, look, at, um, look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. That's from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah 28, verse 16. By the way, that's a condensing, a condensation of uh, Isaiah 28, verse 16. Uh, You want to hear a more of a blown-out description? It's awesome. You know, so it's okay to take a bigger one and make it take smaller components of it, right? Okay, you can't take smaller ones and make a bigger one. You take a bigger one and make a smaller one, okay? But here's the bigger one. This is awesome. Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Don't you want to believe in a Savior like that? I mean, even if you're, even if you're a visitor and you think Christians are insane, and that we believe fairy tales from 2,000 years ago and we put our faith in a dead guy who was murdered. Uh, if, if that's you, it doesn't the idea that there's a deliverer coming, that there's someone who sees the condition of the earth and he comes and he's a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Is that not at least a lovely thought for your soul to consider? Well, the writer goes on. In verse 7, uh, he quotes Psalm 118.22. He says, the honor is for you who believe. Uh, but for those who don't believe, um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118.22. And then uh, in uh, verse 8, he goes on, he quotes Isaiah 8.14. He says, um, if, if you don't believe, then G- this Jesus... Uh, he's, it's not beautiful. It's not wonderful that he's a precious cornerstone or a sure foundation, none of that. What it is to you then is he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Well, on all this stuff, I've got three applications. Application number one is this. The significance of a cornerstone is not ornamental. All right? You know that Grace of Anne, do you know that we have a cornerstone? You know where it is? Yeah, it's right out here. By the, it's right, yeah, it's right out here. But, you know, it's not really a cornerstone. I mean, it's four feet off the ground on a column, you know. It's holding up the archway over the main offices over here. It's not really a cornerstone. It's on the bottom, and it's the, actually the actual corner of the foundation uh, by which all things are measured. Um, the significance of a cornerstone, ladies and gentlemen, is um, a lot like laying tile, which I didn't mean to say in the service, but I did. <laughs> it's a lot like laying tile. They don't look at me, as, they don't think it is, it's as profound when it's out there. You did a lot like laying tile? They're like, what? shut up. Um, hey, can I stray from my notes for a second? One time out there, <laughs> we were about to sing Arise, My Soul, Arise. And isn't that a great thought? Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. And in my opening prayer, I asked God that he would help us in our souls shake off our guilty fears like a big, wet dog. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I don't write down my prayers before I, I mean, I'm completely reliant upon the Holy Spirit. Anyway, that wasn't very well received. But um, uh, back, to the, back to my message here, <laughs> the 
that I study for. It's kind of like laying down tile. Um, you got to find the center of the floor, the exact center, and you mark the exact center. And once you have the pinpoint of it, then everything else is measured by that. And that's, that's the idea of a cornerstone. A cornerstone is laid down. It's the first thing that's laid down. And it's got to be precise. And everything that happens from that cornerstone, everything's measured against that. It's, it's like a plumb line, uh, the significance of the cornerstone. It affects 100% of the rest of it. Well, let's go back to the, uh, the, 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 the first thing we were talking about. As you come to him in verse 4, as you come to him, why do you come to him? Well, he's a living stone, yes. Um, in verse 5, it says, you yourselves are like living stones. And furthermore, in verse 6, you're being built up. All right, so it's this cornerstone, and you're being built up. You get the idea? There's this construction idea, and you got to have a cornerstone. The idea is that someone is a master architect. Someone is building his church. Someone is doing something in your life Someone is, is fitting you to be a component. Uh, you are being built up uh, as a spiritual house. Have you noticed that um, in verses 4 and 5, if you just read verses 4 and 5, just straight through, you would find that it is the Holy Spirit telling us through Peter that this is God doing everything. There's nothing in here. There's no exhortation. It's not, it, it's not saying, as you come to him, you ought to go do this and this and this. There's plenty of that later. But notice it in verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up uh, to offer acceptable sacrifices. But even that, you're being built up to go do that. It's all God doing this thing. He's building for himself a spiritual house that we might give sacrifices. So um, for the Christian who is feeling discouraged... um, or even under persecution in his or her own house. Ladies and gentlemen, remember, you are like a living stone. Oh, Jesus is a living stone? Guess what? You're like a living stone. You're being built up by the master builder who's got a plan. Uh, There's a master builder, and you're a part of the perfect plan of the perfect master builder. That should be an encouragement to your soul. It it should give value uh, to the experiences uh, you're going through. All right, that's application number one. Application number two is this. Notice in verse five, you, are, you yourselves are like living stones. It doesn't say bricks. Bricks are uniform. Stones are not uniform. Bricks are made, okay? Stones are, are quarried. They're dug up. They're chipped. They're hammered. Uh, bricks are uniform. Stones are irregular. Stones need to be hammered and shaped and cut and fit. And stones come in all sizes too. You've seen in England a dry stone wall or you see craftsmen. I'm not talking about uh, Home Depot with the fake brick uh, facade, but when you get like a real team of guys in cowboy hats and they've got hammers and stuff and they're, they're putting it together, it's like a big puzzle. And when it comes out, it's pretty dang awesome. It's like that Roanoke fence on uh, Poplar. Is it Roanoke? Oak something or other? It's like the prettiest stone wall in Memphis. Uh, When it comes together and you've seen that a craftsman has taken all these different stones and made something uniform and straight out of it, it's beautiful. And that's the idea. And that's, that's an encouraging thing, ladies and gentlemen. All your strange differences, all your personalities, all your gift mix, all the experiences that you've gone through that allow you to pour your life back into the church and into the kingdom and and the building of it. 
All those things, ladies and gentlemen, they're important. Uh, one of the great things about Christianity is that you don't lose your identity. Uh, you don't become a Stepford wife. Uh, you remain you. And one of the wonderful thoughts about heaven is that your, your personality, your personhood, the core of who you are, doesn't get obliterated. You don't forget what happens. You remain you. It's just that you're a sinless you. You're, you're a you without baggage. You're a you without limitations. You're a you, except for the ones God puts on you. You're a you that is the full expression, fullest expression of you. Is that not a good thought? That's, that's you fitting into God's uh, plan for a spiritual house. Um, your differences are good. You're like, um, you're like living stones. All right, that have to be fitted together. All right, our last application. What does it say about the Father's consideration of the Son? As you come to Jesus, he's a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you're like a living stone. All right, so Jesus is in the eyes of God the Father, chosen and precious, this living stone. And by the way, you're like a living stone. How do you think God thinks about you? With a snarl? With a bad taste in his mouth? Or does he consider the righteousness of his son, the one who afforded you salvation, the one through whom and by whom, bam, you've been found not guilty? What does God see? He sees the righteousness of his son reckoned to your account, ladies and gentlemen. That means that you are chosen and precious, you yourselves, like a living stone who are being built up. Uh, God has a, a perfect plan, and you are perfectly part of that perfect plan. All right, our next point, our last point. A royal priesthood with acceptable sacrifices. Um, Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Four things. They sure sound Jewish, don't they? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's not an argument that, oh, and wait a minute, Peter's really writing to Jewish believers. I'm sure there are Jewish readers of this. But his, his focus is on the Gentile reader. But what he's saying here is he's taking and applying firmly these Jewish Israelite foundational ideas, and he's pressing them into uh, the reality of the Gentile believers. You guys are a chosen race. Wow, you mean like Israel? Yep. You're a royal priesthood. Wow, you mean like Israel? Yep. Uh, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. That, that's the deeply Hebrew things applied in the fullest force to Gentiles. And by the way, um, what about Jesus himself too? All these things are being applied to Jesus' work on the cross to make for, for himself a people. These, these uh, Bible verses from Isaiah and uh, Psalms, those are being applied in fullest force to the Lord Jesus um, that, that he's making for himself a people. All right? So, ladies and gentlemen, in verse 9, we've been made for some wonderful things. Um, Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, for a reason. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. You're proclaiming his excellencies. You're proclaiming, you're living, you're uh, exemplifying gospel realities, his gospel activity. That's who he is and what he has done. 
Now, here's some cold-hearted, not cold-hearted, but let's say cold-hard reality. Here's some cold-hard reality, okay? Um, Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's the, the, the biblical dichotomy. It's two different kinds of people. Um, those who are God's people and those who aren't. Those who have received mercy and those who aren't. And um, it, it's um, just as the very lofty, um, lofty Old Testament promises are applied squarely to Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> so the covenantal blessings of a heritage in Abraham are applied here. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that you're in big spiritual and eternal trouble. Look at verse 7. Um, here it is. You've got uh, an honor for those who do believe, but for those who don't believe, uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They're rejectors of the cornerstone. They're rejectors of this Jesus. Verse 8, they're a stone of stumbling. Uh, Jesus is a rock of defense. They find Jesus repellent. There's no friendly uh, consideration of Jesus. He's either nuts, uh, a jerk, uh, you should spit on him, or he really is who he says he is. Um, here's, here's the big hard reality. Look at the second part of uh, verse 8. They stumble over this Jesus. He's a rock of offense. He's not beautiful. They stumble over him because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, whatever you would like to do with that in your theological schooling, um, take this away, would you? God had a plan of salvation. He decided to save sinners who had rebelled against him. He um, summoned his Christ, the Son of God, and Christ executed the plan by being executed, as I think I said last week. The Holy Spirit it gives life, illuminates, um, shows truth, warms hearts, tenderizes fields, and uh, lets a person be as they were supposed to be. L- ladies and gentlemen, take this opportunity and heed this warning. It says here that you stumble over Christ and disobey God's word because you're destined to do that. You um, find him to be beautiful and a precious cornerstone and a king to be submitted to because you were destined to do that. Let me read you a Bible verse from 2 Corinthians 6.2. And this is the New Living Translation, and I just love the way it's put. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Friend, is today the day of your salvation? Is today the day where you say, wow, this Jesus Christ came to this earth to live the human life that no one else could have ever lived. Um, Fallen, 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 sinner, 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 sinner. 
Anybody feel shame in your life? Uh, anybody ever feel guilt over anything? Anybody wish you hadn't said something that you said? Um, you look back on your life and, you know, you hear these people, you've heard me say this before, people go, if I had to look back on my life, I wouldn't change a thing. Every time I hear somebody say that, I go, well, you're an idiot. <laughs> because I've never met a sane person who would say that. But you examine your life and you go, yeah, a lot of embarrassing sinful, evil things that are, that are shameful. If you played them on a movie screen right now, it would be pretty horrifyingly embarrassing. That's what Jesus came to, to fix. He took upon himself all that sin, all that shame, all that guilt, and was killed the death that you deserved so that you could have his righteousness and that God could look at you with a smile and see that there's good reckoned to your account. That's how you get into heaven, not by trying hard enough, not by winning a presidential election and trying to do the best job you can and hope you get into heaven for that. No, ladies and gentlemen, you do it because salvation is a gift. God has granted it. Um, And that's why, folks, the church is equipped to live as she is. God saves sinners, but he doesn't just leave us here. He equips us to move forward. He's the one who builds the boat. He makes certain it doesn't sink. And so the biggest takeaway for you uh, this morning, I hope, is this. The God of the universe did not give up on you. He sent a rescuer, and he cares about your life, and he sent a savior to rescue you from your guilt and your shame and your sin. And so I ask you, come to the living Christ. Receive the Lord of glory. Accept the gift of eternal life. Choose the Savior. Make today the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Righteous Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for not quitting us. Uh, thank you for not. Thank you for not giving up on your creation. But Lord, I thank you that you did not give up on me. Thank you that you have not given up on me. Thank you that you have saved my wife. Uh, Thank you for this church, and thank you for a Savior who is building it for himself, uh, a spiritual kingdom, uh, a nation, a people of eagerly worshiping souls. And um, we pray, Lord, that you would draw each one of us close to you uh, this day and in the days and years to come, that uh, you might be brought glory, but also that uh, we might be chiseled and chipped and fitted uh, so that we might joyfully take our place in the spiritual house. Um, you're, You're the perfect architect, and we're a part of your perfect plan. We bless you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you.